So last week, we started a new sermon series on the book of Exodus. And Exodus continues the story of God's people, which was started back in the book of Genesis. So to really understand Exodus fully, we've got to remember what foundation was laid in the book of Genesis. And so quick review. In Genesis, remember at the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amazing, massive, beautiful, glorious, perfect creation. And that displayed God's power and God's overflowing goodness and God's wisdom. But tragically, Adam and Eve listened to Satan's temptation and decided to turn their backs on God and walk away. Massive change in in creation, cosmic change. And because of that sin, God brought the justice of his curse upon Adam and Eve and upon the world. But that's not all that happens. Yes, Adam and Eve, we've sinned, but in Genesis, God makes three amazing promises, promises that are just dripping with mercy. First of all, God promises that one of Eve's offspring, some human being, is going to destroy Satan's work. And that's a prophecy of Jesus and a picture of what he would do on the cross. That's one promise. Second promise in Genesis, that God is going to make Abraham's offspring a great nation, populous nation, extending from Egypt all the way to Babylon, massive land, big nation, Abraham's offspring. And then third promise, from that nation, God is going to have one of Abraham's descendants born who will free, liberate, release people from every nation, tongue, and tribe from God's curse and bring them into God's blessing, the blessing of forgiveness by God being reconciled to God, the joy and peace and hope of knowing God. And that's also a prophecy of the Messiah. He was both the offspring of Eve and he was the offspring of Abraham. That's Jesus, the Messiah, and his work done on the cross. So that's that's Genesis. Then at the end of Genesis, a famine, a massive famine hits the region, Threatening God's people, are they all going to die from starvation? No, God had already sent Joseph to Egypt, and in Egypt, Joseph became the number two man overseeing all of Egypt's food supplies, and so when the famine hit, Joseph invited the rest of his people, the people of Israel, to come to Egypt where they settled in, were well-fed, and they multiplied like God said that they would. So the setting when Exodus opens is that Israel is in Egypt, And they are there remembering an amazing promise that Joseph had spoken to them at the end of Genesis 50, verse 24. Here's what Joseph said to them. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, the land of Egypt. God will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now that was such an encouraging promise to Israel because Israel ends up staying in Egypt for a long time under harsh and horrifying circumstances. It it starts when the Pharaoh gets threatened by how large they're becoming, and so he decides to kill them off by enslaving them, giving them very oppressive work 
situation. And not only that, he tells all the Egyptians, when an Israelite baby is born, kill him, a baby boy, kill him. And so terrible environment, terrible situation. So all of Israel's thinking, when's God going to visit us? When's God going to deliver us from Egypt, take us to this amazing land that He's promised? Now, last week in Exodus chapter 2, we saw God miraculously saving the life of this Israelite baby boy named Moses. Remember last week? And, incredibly, has, has him adopted by one of Pharaoh's daughters. So you can just imagine all the Israelites are thinking, might this be the one through whom God is going to deliver us? God has supernaturally protected him. God has had him be adopted into Pharaoh's family. I mean, something unusual is going on here. Could, could this be the one through whom God will deliver us? And, and that's the question that's going to flow through today's passage. Verses 11 and 12, let's start there. Exodus 2, verses 11 and 12, we see that the, the author points us to hints that Moses just might be. Israel's deliverer. Look at verses 11 and 12 and notice these hints here from the author. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out, went out from the palace, went out from all the stuff he had as Pharaoh's adopted son, went out to his people and looked on their burdens. They were out there doing slave work. Went out to his people, looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people, one of Moses' people. Moses looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now again, notice four different hints here that maybe Moses is going to be God's deliverer. First, that Moses goes out to his people from his palace to slave land, where they're all enslaved under this hot Egyptian sun making bricks. Second, that twice Israel is described as his People. So Moses remembers, these are his people, his progeny, his, his people of Israel. Third, Moses looked on their burdens. He saw their suffering, their oppression. And then fourth, when he sees an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews, Moses defends that Hebrew slave and, and in the process kills the Egyptian. Now, just a side note here, we're wondering maybe, was that right for Moses to do? And commentators kind of split evenly down the middle, but here's why I think it was right. is because of what Stephen preaches in Acts chapter 7. So he's out there, and he's preaching evangelism, and he's telling the story about Moses. And look at what Stephen says in Acts 7, 23 to 24, how he describes this situation. He says, when he, Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So Moses' action involved defending someone from oppression. And so that, that language makes me think that what Moses did was right. Now, with that in mind, then let's, let's go back to Exodus. So what's, what's happening in Exodus? Here's a picture of the passage, and I want to give you a picture so you can walk through how this passage develops. Remember that Joseph had promised people of Israel that God would deliver them from Egypt and take them to the promised land. 
So verses 11 and 12 give us hints, maybe Moses is this deliverer through whom God will bring them back to the promised land, get them out of Egypt. So think about how, this, how the word would have spread. Did, did, you, did you hear what Moses did? I mean, remember, everybody knows Moses, he was supernaturally saved from being killed. He was adopted into Pharaoh's family. Israelites are talking, who is this Moses? Could he be the deliverer? And then that he's protected one of our slaves who was being beaten by an Egyptian slave master. So the word would have spread. But then in the next section, there's a huge problem. Huge problem develops. Moses flees to Midian. Verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, when he, Moses, went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he, Moses, said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And notice, first of all, the next day, so two days in a row, Moses goes out to his people in their slavery there. So again, this would be encouraging. Maybe Moses is the one. He, he's, he's got all this power. He's one of us. He's caring about us. Think about all the encouragement that there would have been there. But when Moses sees two Hebrews fighting, he tells the man in the wrong that he should not be doing that. But look at how this man responds. Verse 14, he, the man in the wrong, answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Okay, the word has spread a lot farther than I thought it might have. And then look at verse 15, why this is so serious. When Pharaoh heard of it, what Moses had done in killing this Egyptian slave master, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. See the problem? Pharaoh's trying to kill Moses. Moses flees Egypt and heads to Midian. Now, to see why this is such a huge problem, look at this map. Where's Midian? Okay, see upper left corner there is Egypt. Bottom right-hand corner is Midian. Midian is about 500 kilometers away from Egypt. This is a long ways away. So how can Moses deliver Israel from Egypt if he's in Midian? And so we're left wondering, how long is he going to stay there? Maybe he's going to come back soon. No, look at verses 16 through 22. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Remember, this is in Midian now, where Moses is. The shepherds came and drove them, the seven daughters, away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Don't you love Moses? Man, love this guy. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They, they got their watering done so quickly. How did that happen? They said, An Egyptian. So, you know, Moses has got his Egyptian garb, his clothes on. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Ruel, he was a smart man. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Let's bring him into the household here. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. 
So here's a picture of the passage, okay? Remember verses 11 and 12, Moses might be Israel's deliverer, but now verses 13 through 22, Moses flees for his life to Midian, and the fact that Moses gets married and has a child in Midian shows, looks like Moses is settling down here, okay? Israel's still back in Egypt. Moses is settling down 500 kilometers away in Midian. So can you feel what a big problem this is? How discouraging this could have been for the people of Israel still subjected to such harsh slavery back in Egypt. So how can Moses be the deliverer? I mean, again, God supernaturally protected him from being killed, had him be adopted into Pharaoh's family. Now has Pharaoh's grown up, or Moses has grown up. He's out here visiting us. He's protecting us. And now he's in Midian, 500 kilometers away. What's going on? Now, before answering that question, the author shifts the focus back to Israel in Egypt. What are they doing? What's happening with Israel in Egypt? Remember, Joseph had told them, end of Genesis 50, God is going to visit us. He's going to visit you, and he's going to free you from Egypt, bring you up out of this land, take you to the promised land. So they're remembering that promise. So what's Israel doing? Verses 23 through 25. Israel groans in prayer, and God hears. Verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. That might have given them some hope that maybe Moses can come back. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Okay, so let's, here's the picture of the passage as it develops. Remember, Israel thought Moses might be their deliverer, verses 11 and 12. Then Moses flees to Midian where he settles down, has a child, verses 13 through 22. Meanwhile, Israel is suffering terrible oppression and slavery. So Israel groans in prayer and God hears. Now, let me just comment. I've been thinking this week about groaning in prayer. And one thing I want to share with you is I think there's some Christians, maybe some of you, who think that believers with like really strong faith would never groan in prayer. They would never groan. They would never suffer. Why would they ever groan? Strong faith would never weep or grieve. Strong faith is strong faith. Some of you, you maybe have thought that. Well, I want to tell you, that is completely wrong. Read the book of Psalms. Read the book of Lamentations, which is all about a lament that Jeremiah has before God, weeping before God. And so I just want you to be clear. God's people, God's strong faith people, grieve, suffer, go through trials, and groan before God. So any idea that You're never supposed to groan or lament or sorrow. No, we do. But when God's people groan, we should never groan against God, like angrily, like against God. We we should groan toward God, humbly, before Him. And so I want to encourage you. You may have heard that, you know, when you get, when you have trials and when you suffer, nothing wrong with being angry at God. 
like groaning against God. Nothing wrong with being angry against God because God can take it, we may have heard. Well, let me, I would just caution you to think about what you're saying when you are angry against God. When, when you're angry against God, when I'm angry against God, I'm saying, God, you're wrong. This is, this is a wicked thing you're doing. This is not righteous what you're doing. And that's wrong if we talk that way, right? Now, it's not that the only alternative is either that you just pretend before God or that you are angry at God. There's a, there's a middle ground here. We can come to God and say, Father, I am really struggling with this. Forgive me for my unbelief. I'm having a hard time trusting you. Father, how much longer is this going to happen? Please help me, strengthen me. See, that's, that's a beautiful prayer. God just smiles at that prayer and comes to you and he'll meet you. But that's very different from saying, God, how long is this going on? And so let's not be angry against God. Do you see how unwise that is? It is so proud. It is so unwise. We all are tempted to from time to time, right? But, oh, Grace Church, come to God. Don't pretend. Be real. Father, I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time with this. I'm weak. I'm I'm, I'm having a hard time trusting you. Help me to trust you. And listen, Grace Church, every time, this is so encouraging, Jot down Mark chapter 9, verse 24. One of my life verses, okay? What's, what's Pastor C's life verse? I believe, help my unbelief, okay? Such an encouraging prayer because that prayer is answered. And God loves it when we come to him and say, I'm having a hard time believing, I'm having a hard time trusting you here. Help me. He loves that prayer. Is that clear, Grace? So we, we should groan, but not against God angrily. We should groan humbly, help me, weeping before him. And he is groaning and weeping with us in those times. So Israel is is groaning before God. Now, something else that, that God stirred in my heart as I was thinking about groaning in prayer is how easy it is for me to, to, to pray just going through the motions, uh, kind of shallow prayers, routine prayers. Maybe you can relate to that. But see, Israel's prayers here are not shallow and routine. They're not going through the motions. They are groaning and crying out to God, Father, Father, look at the oppression we're experiencing. Look at the slavery that we're under. We're being beaten. We're being killed. Father, please help us, strengthen us, deliver us. You promised, Joseph promised that you would come and visit us. Father, come. No, just going through the list of prayer for them. No, just routine prayers for them. No shallow prayers for them. It's just coming from the heart. They're pouring out their soul before God, just like, like Hannah did when she was praying for a baby. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, my next thought was, I, I'll, I'll bet that some of us here, you're wondering, what's there to groan about in prayer? I, I, don't, I don't have any real reason to groan, and, and I can relate because... Many times that's, that's what I'm thinking too, but the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, we all have hundreds of reasons to groan in prayer. See, see if you agree with this. Like, what about our brothers and sisters here in Grace Church who've lost their jobs? They've lost their jobs. They're struggling. I mean, 
How can we not groan in prayer for them? Father, please help them, strengthen them, provide for them, Lord. Look down upon their need. You've promised, God, please come. Help them, strengthen their faith, strengthen my faith. What about the friend you have who's, who's drifting away from Jesus? It's dangerous to drift away from Jesus. Wouldn't that be reason to groan before God in prayer? Absolutely. What about our own lukewarmness or our lack of love for Christ? Shouldn't that give us reason to say, Father, look at my fickle heart. Look at my dull heart. I mean, I'm reading about amazing truths in your word, and it's like, what's in the refrigerator? I mean, it's, it's, Father, help me, forgive me, change me. Doesn't our own sinfulness give us reason to groan before God? Or, or how about the thousands of people living around us here in Abu Dhabi? who have never heard the gospel, never, never heard it, and they are on their way to hell forever. Oh, friends, we have hundreds of reasons to groan in prayer. So this has convicted me this week, church. I need more groaning in prayer, and, and I'm, I'm sure that some of you do too. So let's take this to heart. Israel is groaning in prayer, crying out to God for help, and notice at the end of verse 23, their prayer for help comes up to God. And then in verses 24 and 25, look at how God responds to their prayer. Verse 24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Four responses, four ways that God always responds to our prayer. When we're praying in Jesus' name, from the heart, earnestly, God always responds in these four ways. Think about it like this. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, and because you are trusting Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord and as your treasure, every time you pray earnestly in Jesus' name, He hears your prayer, hears your groaning. He remembers his covenant, he sees what's going on, and he knows all that's happening in your situation. Now, let's unpack each of these. What do each of these four mean? I'm praying that God will use these four so that we're thinking, man, I want to pray more. If this is what God does when we pray, I want to pray more. Because one of the, I think, Satan's most powerful lies and most effective lies is to make us think that prayer does nothing. Prayer changes nothing. Maybe prayer changes you, but it changes nothing out there. And if we think prayer doesn't touch God's heart, stir God's heart, affect God's heart in some way, we will be far less motivated to pray, won't we? Here's four powerful ways that, God, that prayer affects God's heart. So first, God hears their groaning. He hears our prayers. What does that mean? It means that when you kneel down by your bed and pray, your prayers aren't just bouncing off the ceiling. That's what this means. It means that God is really there, really there. He's hearing your words, every word. He's hearing your heart. He's hearing your groans. Now, remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who has all the power in the universe, 
whose presence fills the heavens. Think about how big the universe is. He fills that with his presence. He has all the power in the universe. He has all authority over everything. We're talking about God and this massive, glorious, majestic God. When you kneel down by your bed and pray earnestly in Jesus' name, he hears every word. He welcomes every word. He's impacted by every word. He cares about every word. God listens to little me and little you when we pray. Isn't this amazing? Oh, church, let's pray more. When you pray, God's heart is stirred. And so God hears their groaning. And he hears our prayers, our groanings. Then God also remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember what a covenant is. We talked about this. A covenant is like a, a contract. We use the word contract more often today. You have your labor contract. That's a covenant. And because of Jesus, death on the cross, God offers us a contract of all that he promises to do for those who are trusting Jesus. It's a covenant. It's a contract. And God had made a contract, a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that if they would trust him, if they would trust him, then all their sins would be forgiven because of what the Messiah would do in the future, that God would satisfy their hearts with his presence and his nearness, that he would guide them and provide for them and care for them and protect them, and that he would create from them a great nation through whom would be born the Messiah, who will free people from God's curse, bring people into God's blessing from every nation, tongue, and tribe. So when Israel cried out to God, God remembered his covenant. It's not that God ever forgot his covenant. But in a special way, God, yes, yes, I've made this, this promise, this promise. Yes, I've promised to deliver Israel from Egypt. Yes, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the same thing happens with us. When you pray, God, in a special way, remembers the promises that he has given you in the scriptures that are blood-bought promises. Your contract is sealed, is signed with Jesus' blood. God remembers those blood-bought promises. So when you come, you're feeling full of guilt over some past sin or some recent sin. Father, look, I'm so sorry. Look at what I've done. He remembers his covenant, the blood-bought promises, and he says, I will forgive. Yes, I will forgive. He remembers his promises. When you, when you pray about some discouragement, maybe you're just feeling really low, hopeless, fearful, anxious, worried, whatever it might be, as you pray, say, God, look at my heart. I'm so discouraged. God remembers his covenant. Yes, Psalm 23, I was, I was praying over it this week. He restores your soul. Good shepherd, he will restore your soul. So God remembers his covenant. I will restore the souls of my people, and he will go to work to encourage you and to strengthen you. Or if you're battling some temptation, 
Maybe you're fighting some sexual temptation or some pride temptation or some bitterness or jealousy temptation. Father, I'm, I'm fighting. I, this is just overwhelming my heart. I don't think I can resist any longer. Help me. God will remember his covenant. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he remembers his covenant and he will go to work. Here's the way of escape. Here's strength. He will meet you. He will help you. He remembers his covenant when we pray earnestly in Jesus' name. But now there's times when we're praying and we know that God hears our prayers and we know that God remembers His promises, all of His promises. And we, we find ourselves saying something like that, something like, I know that God has made these promises to me, but fill in the blank, right? We all struggle with that sometimes. Let me explain what I mean by that if you, if you can't relate to that yet. This, I think, is what is going on here when we see that God sees See, for example, Israel could very well have said, yes, I know that God is hearing our, our prayers. I know that he remembers his promise. But Moses is 500 kilometers away in Midian, right? Or we can pray, I know that God has promised to provide for our needs, and I've lost my job, and, and I know that he's promised it. But, I mean, the economy is horrible. You ever find yourself praying that way? Or... I know I, I, I want to share the gospel with this person, and, but, but like their heart is just so hard, they're never going to be interested. And we can think, it's not going to happen. But see, when God sees, I think the point is that He sees exactly the problems that you think are going to keep Him from fulfilling His promises, and none of them can stop God from fulfilling His promises. So Israel's saying, I know you've promised, but... Joseph's 500 kilometers away. God says, I see that. It doesn't make any difference to me. I will fulfill my promises. Or, I know you've promised to provide for our needs and to provide jobs, but look at the economy. Look at COVID. And God says, I see the economy, and I see COVID better than you do. It's not going to stop me from fulfilling my promises. Or we say, this person's heart is so hard, why would I want to bother sharing the gospel with him? I mean, it's, it's, this is a hard heart. God says, I see. I see even more than you do how hard that heart is. But hard hearts never stop me from saving people. I take out hard hearts and put in soft hearts when I save people. Hard hearts are not a problem. I can save anybody. I saved you, right? And so God sees the things that we think are going to get in the way of Him fulfilling His promises. Isn't that encouraging? So be honest. What are the things you said? Well, I know what God promises, but God says, I see that. It's not going to stop me. Blood-bought promises given by a sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth, that's not going to stop Him. So, oh, then well, there's one more. God knows. And I think this is the summary of the first three. So God hears all of our longings. God remembers all of his promises. God sees all the obstacles, the problems. God knows the whole situation. And then what happens? God responds. God answers. 
So Israel groaned in prayer before God. God heard their prayer, remembered His covenant promises, saw their whole situation, knew all about them, and then what did God do? What did God do? Israel was groaning in prayer. What did God do? God calls Moses to return to Egypt. Verses 1 through 10, chapter 3. God calls Moses to return to Egypt. 500 kilometers, not a problem. Now, Pastor Ben's going to be preaching on these verses next week, so I'm just going just to point out one thing from this, and that is that God calls Moses to return to Egypt, but, but read and just think, wow, look at what God is doing in answer to their prayers. Verse 1, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, Ruel, different, same, same person, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So there's Moses by the mountain of God with all these sheep. What happens? Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Don't you love that? Israel's groaning, praying, and God, boom, flame of fire. The angel of the Lord. He looked, Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. It's the right answer. Yes, sir. Here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God is there. God went to Midian and appeared to Moses. And he said, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely, now just, this is so, so touching, so powerful, I just love it. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. Isn't that comforting? He has seen and have heard their cry. Same words that were in the previous verse. I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Heard, seen, known. What about remembering the promises? That's the next verse, verse 8. And I have come down to deliver them, as I promised, out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, Moses, come, Moses, I love that. I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The people are enslaved, horrifying, oppression, suffering. 
They are groaning, crying out to God for help. And God hears. God remembers the promises. God sees every difficulty. God knows and God answers. He calls Moses to return to Egypt. Now here's the picture of the passage. Just get get the whole picture here. Verses 11 and 12. It looked like Moses might be the deliverer, but then, verses 13 through 22, Moses flees for his life and settles in Midian. Verses 23 through 25, so Israel groans, prays to God, and God hears. And then in verses 1 through 10, God answers. He calls Moses to return to Egypt. Now, three takeaways, church. Number one, most important, number one, Are you trusting Jesus? That's how God hears our prayers. We are sinful people. Are you trusting Jesus as your Savior, His death on the cross, paying for your sins? Are you trusting Jesus as your Lord, your Master, your King, your authority? Are you trusting Jesus as your all-satisfying treasure? Because you're trusting Jesus, God hears every word, every sigh, every longing, every groaning. He welcomes and cares for every, everything in your heart as you're praying because you're trusting Jesus. So are you trusting Jesus? Trust Him. Look at Him. Look at who God is here. Second takeaway, are you praying earnestly to God? Or is your prayer shallow and perfunctory and just going through the motions? Look back over your prayer life this last week. Has there been groaning? Has there been longing? We have hundreds of reasons to groan in prayer before God. So so what do you do if, if, if you say, well, not really? Here's the good news. Ask God to help you. God, help me to see the needs that are around me. Help me to see my own needs. Help me to see who you are. Help me to see that you answer. Help me to see how, how important this is, that life is short and eternity is long and prayer is crucial. And as you pray that, he will help you and your, your earnestness will grow. Your feeling in prayer will grow. Your longing, your groaning will grow. So are you praying earnestly before God? And then third, if so, If you're trusting Jesus, you're praying earnestly, you can be assured that God hears your prayers, that God remembers all of his promises, that God sees all the difficulties and problems, that God knows the whole situation, and you can be absolutely assured that God will answer. God will answer. Let's stand. Let's pray for our prayer lives, okay? Lord, I pray that you would take this passage now, these truths from your word, and that you would touch us in that area of our prayer lives that we need to be strengthened in. Lord, for those who are here who are not yet trusting Jesus, if that's the issue, Lord, right now, strengthen their faith, give them faith, Lord, soften their hearts if that's an issue. Lord, save people right now, I pray. Help us, Lord, to pray with more longing, more earnestness, more groaning, that we wouldn't just go through the motions or pray through the list, but, Lord, help us to pray. We need your help to do that, and, Lord, thank you that as we are trusting Jesus and praying earnestly, we know that you hear, remember, see, know, 
and answer. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.